The New Testament reading for today is Titus 1, 5-9. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, and his children are believers, and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination, for an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray again together. Father, today we thank you for the, the gift of your word, and we submit to it, we yield to it, we acknowledge its authority. It's your word and not ours. And so we depend now on the gift of your Holy Spirit to be our teacher. And now, Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts, may they be found acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer, we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're looking today at Titus. We continue on in this series on Titus, Titus 1. And uh, this passage that we have today from 5 to 9 is essentially a description of the pastoral office. And uh, it's good for pastors to hear this. It's good also for the people to hear this because both sides, pastors and people, can imagine things about the pastoral office that simply aren't true. And so it's important for us today, as we look at this text, to hear carefully what the Apostle says is true and important about the pastoral office, and by extension, what things are not true about the pastoral office. And the first thing, if you look at your text before you today, the first thing that we notice about pastoral ministry is that it concerns the establishment of order. Verse 5, Paul says, I left you, Titus, in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order. Now, evidently, there's great confusion in Crete. There's been a rejection of the spiritual and pastoral authority that Paul and Titus initially attempted to establish there before Paul left for whatever reason. And we see this in verses 10 to 16 with this phrase of insubordinate teachers, teachers who are given to insubordination. There's been a strong backlash in Crete against the establishment of this church order. Now, Paul's answer is not to run away, and it's certainly not to entertain the insubordinate. Paul's answer to this mess in Crete is the appointment of appropriate pastoral authority. That is, Paul's answer to the lawlessness in Crete is to reinforce the office of the pastor. Titus, he says, appoint pastors in every town. Now, you can imagine how difficult this is for Titus to hear. Titus is by himself. Paul has gone away. Titus, Paul says, meet this confusion and rebellion against you with the very thing that they don't want. Establish the church in the way that they're definitely going to resist because these Cretans do not want to be ruled. And Calvin says something very perceptive here. He writes that we are mistaken if we think that we are more ready to accept a fuller and sounder form of government than these people were. 
We all, Calvin writes, struggle against this. We all buck under the yoke. We don't like being ruled. We don't like being ruled in the civil world. And that's why Peter and Paul have to, you know, perpetually remind the people to obey every authority in the civil world. We don't like being ruled there, and we don't like it in the ecclesiastical world either. And so Titus, to meet this problem, is told to appoint men who are going to be under God equal to the task. He needs to appoint men who know what they're getting into and are going to be found faithful in the task. Now, what I want to do today is consider with you what it is that Paul expects of a pastor and accordingly what it is that the people of God should expect of a pastor. And I want to begin by pointing out just very briefly that the pastoral ministry is not self-appointed. It's not something that you call yourself to. In fact, it's profoundly not this. Paul says at numerous points that he was appointed as a preacher. He says to Timothy, I didn't decide to do this. I was appointed to this task. It was given to me. In fact, Paul says, woe is me if I don't do what God has asked me to do. The vocation to pastoral ministry is a definite summons. It's a call and it's a divine appointment. And without this sense of appointment and calling, no man should undertake it because when things go from bad and they go to worse, and when they go from worse to downright ugly, all that you're going to have as a pastor is a call (laughs) and a sense that if I leave this mess, woe is me. And so it's a definite call and it's a definite appointment from God. Now, the first qualification that Pastor, men- uh, that Paul, Pastor Paul mentions, it's, it's a doozy. If anyone, he says, is without reproach. If anyone is blameless. First of all, Titus, find all the men out there that are blameless. Paul can't be uh, meaning here sinlessness, because if that was the case, Paul would be disqualifying himself. Paul admits, right? to Timothy, that he's the chief of sinners. And this is, by the way, why Paul says the law still applies to him. The law, he said, was laid down for sinners. <laughs> and then at the end of that passage, he says, of whom I am chief, Timothy. The law still applies to me. And the apostle Paul, being the guy that does the things that he doesn't want to do, and doesn't do the things that he knows that he should do, the apostle Paul fits perfectly into J.C. Ryle's dictum, at our very best... We are far worse than we ought to be. That's just us, right? All of us. At our very best, we are far worse than we ought to be. I have a pencil that I use to mark up my books when I read. It's a blue pencil, a Staedtler pencil, and I scraped off the skin of the pencil, and I wrote there in permanent ink, Simul justus et peccator, at once justified and sinful. To remind me, to never let me forget that I am always perfectly righteous in Christ. Perfectly righteous without flaw, and at the same time, I'm a desperately wicked sinner, always. So blameless here cannot mean sinless, but blameless means so given to the call of God and so given to the call of discipleship and holiness and godliness that our lives are freed from visible scandal and visible shame. No one should be able to save a pastor he's a drunkard. 
No one should be able to save a pastor, he's a womanizer. No one should be able to save a pastor, he's a downright thief. Three attributes, by the way, which have riddled the evangelical church. Womanizing, monetary theft, and drunkenness. That shouldn't happen. Paul struggled like the rest of us do. He admits to being sinful like all of us are, but he was so given to the pursuit of a godly life, and Paul's life was eminently holy, eminently holy. In fact, Alexander White says this. He says, Paul was the only minister that ever lived who could have read uh, Richard Baxter's Reformed Pastor. And if you've read this, you know what I mean. He's the only guy who could read that kind of high... um, call to the pastoral ministry without going mad with remorse. Paul was a holy man. And because the pastor is not only teaching God's command by precept, but because the pastor is teaching God's word by example, and because his life becomes a sermon, a scandal will disqualify him necessarily. And this puts the pastor in a very challenging place. If even the simplest of believers, writes Calvin, must be firm in the faith, what should they be who live as an example for everybody else? A Christian can fall into some scandal and continue as a postman. A pastor cannot fall into scandal and continue to be a pastor. It's a serious thing. Secondly, Paul says a pastor must be the husband of one wife. Now, a few things here. First of all, Paul is definitely not saying that single men can't be pastors. Why? Well, again, that would disqualify himself as it would disqualify the Lord Jesus. Both of them were single men. Both of them followed that pastoral call very effectively, very successfully. Secondly, it's clear to me that Paul could easily have said, A pastor should be the husband of one wife or the wife of one husband. He could have said that with ease, but he doesn't say that. And in Titus, the pastoral office is specifically linked to the male gender, and that is reinforced across the whole New Testament. It doesn't mean, by the way, in any way, though some will ferociously disagree with me, it does not make women less valuable in the kingdom. It does, however, give women specific roles in the kingdom, something that we're going to see in Titus chapter 2. Thirdly, Paul reinforces here the traditional view of marriage as Jesus does. One man and one woman. Certainly Paul here is addressing some form of polygamy in Crete. Those who would look back to the patriarchs and said, well, Abraham did it. This patriarch did it. Goodness sakes, even David did it. And Paul says in the gospel, there's been reinforcement of the Old Testament principle, God's plan from beginning. And so Paul reinforces that here. Fourthly, I want to say to you today that mandatory clerical celibacy is repugnant to the plain sense of Scripture. It makes no sense whatsoever in view of this passage. Now, I believe Rome is a true church. I just believe in this sense, Rome is in definite error. And Calvin gets quite excited about this in his sermons, as he rightly should. It's a good thing for pastors to be married. They shouldn't be hindered from that. And um, 
For this reason, actually, Paul moves now into this uh, further dimension where he sets up the home as the proving ground for pastors. This is important here. Paul sets up the home as the proving ground for pastors. If a man can't rule his house well, he can't rule God's house well. That's the principle here. If a man can't rule his house, then he can't rule God's house. And that's why Paul now will bring the children into this conversation. He says, in effect, if a man's children are unruly, and you'll notice now he uses the word twice in this passage, unruly here, unruly now with respect to the Cretans uh, in the church. These are not Cretans on the outside. These are uh, Cretan believers. Um, If your children are unruly, insubordinate people doing insubordinate things, people who cannot stomach authority. If a man can't keep his children from being insubordinate, that is despising authority, how can he teach the people of God to respect the authority of God and the authority that God designates to his church? How can this man possibly shape God's people into a submissive and an obedient flock? If he fails there in his home, he's going to fail here in the church. Titus, he says, you can't possibly deal with all these unruly people in Crete unless you find men who know how to deal with unruliness in the home. See, Paul says the church is like a house. It's not like a house. In fact, it is a house. It's God's house. And this is what Paul says in verse 7. The pastor is the manager of this house. He's the steward. And his job is to make sure everything is running decently and in order. And Josh knows this phrase very well because they're studying this in 1 Corinthians. Paul's quite concerned that things are done decently and that they're done in order. And so Calvin says, is it a small thing to be God's steward? and to be put in control of his house. What a job it is for a parent when the children don't want to be ruled. What a job. And what a job for the pastor when the people do not want to be ruled. And so Paul says, Titus, you are walking into some very difficult stuff. Find men who are capable. Now, this capability, Paul will expand in verses 7 to 8. He talks now about these moral qualifications of a pastor, which really here apply to all people. And then in verse 9, Paul points out three main tools for the pastor's vocation. Now, these aren't exhaustive, but they're defining for the pastor. He says, Titus, number one, a pastor's job is to hold firm to the trustworthy word. Titus number two, a pastor's job is to give instruction. Titus number three, a pastor's job is to rebuke those who contradict the teaching of the church. And so briefly now, first of all, Titus number one, hold firm. Titus study. Titus root yourself. Titus ground yourself. Titus immerse yourself in the faithful trustworthy word. Titus, your job is to hold firm. And church, let me say to you today, you pay your pastor to hold firm 
That's what you pay him to do. You let him be in a place so that he can give himself to the scriptures, so that he can ground himself in the faithful teachings of the church to hold on to it so that when the winds of bad doctrine blow, and they will blow, your pastor can hold firm. Because you've set him in the place to be grounded and to hold on. My job is to hold on to this truth and not to be blown away. Because if I get blown away, you might get blown away. And that's how it works. And so you don't want your pastor busy waiting on tables. You want him busy studying the Scripture and busy studying the faithful teachings of the church. Timothy, Paul says, give yourself to these things. Timothy, devote yourself to them. Give yourself to the Scriptures. Give yourself, Timothy, to the teaching. Watch them and watch your own life, Timothy, with the utmost care because the time is coming, Timothy, when they will no longer endure it. They will no longer endure sound teaching, having itching ears, wanting to go hither and thither and follow who knows who. So, Timothy, you hold on. It's your job to give yourself to these things. The pastor's job is to hold firm. It's to anchor himself in the faithful word of the apostolic and the Catholic and the historic church, and that's what you want to set him free to do. You don't want your pastor to be a pushover. You don't want your pastor to be a pushover. You want him to be a man who will not budge from the trustworthy word as he's being taught. See, the pastor doesn't innovate. The pastor simply hands off what's been handed down to him. He holds firm. Secondly, Titus, you must give instruction in sound doctrine. Behind the scenes, the pastor holds firm. In the public sphere, it's clear teaching and exposition. Behind the scenes, the pastor is the theologian. In the public sphere, the pastor is the preacher. And in fact, you don't have the one without the other. You don't have the preacher and the teacher without the holding on and the devoting yourself to these things. And there's no such thing as a pastor who doesn't preach. It's how the pastor rules the people. Rector, by the way, simply means ruler, the one who rules. It's the same strong word that we find in Hebrews 13, submit to those who rule over you, we hear in the Greek. And it makes no sense whatsoever, and I see it in so many places, to have a lead pastor who's not the teaching pastor. It makes no biblical sense whatsoever. There's no warrant for it in the Bible. A pastor leads by teaching, and if a man isn't called to teach, my brothers and sisters, he's not called to be a pastor. A pastor rules a people by explaining to people who God is and who they are, what God has done in Christ, and how they should respond, and he rules uh, people by teaching them how to behave, what they should do, and what they should not do. And there are people who don't like that. And so Paul says, thirdly, that it's the pastor's job to rebuke people who contradict sound teaching. A pastor needs to have a gentle voice, and a pastor needs to have a terrifying voice. (laughs) We should not think it odd, writes Calvin, if pastors speak roughly from the pulpit and appear excessively strict and severe. Think of the state we are in today, he says. 
are we any better off than they were in Paul's day in Crete? That is, are we any different than this Cretan church surrounded and infiltrated by the insubordinate, by empty talkers, and by deceivers? And so Paul says, Titus, the pastor's job is to teach. The pastor's job is also to rebuke. And you do not want your pastor to be a milk toast. You want him to speak with the gracious words of Jesus, but you want your pastor also to speak with a fearsome voice to drive the wolves away. And if I have to bark, <laughs> I will bark because that's my job. Because when everyone else is sleeping, it's my job to watch you. When everyone else is asleep and I have to bark to drive away the wolves, I will bark at them. Because that's my job as a pastor. Titus, rebuke those who oppose sound doctrine. And later on, after verse 10, Paul says, Titus, these men's mouths, they must be shut. Titus, you just stop them saying what they're saying. So brothers and sisters, I hope that this is a helpful, um, if somewhat uh, awakening appreciation for what a pastor's job is. I'm your shepherd under the Lord. And God give me grace to speak to you the gospel and to hold firm and to teach you the words of Jesus and to rebuke everyone who comes here and speaks against it. So let me pray uh, with you. If you would just join me, I'm going to pray a prayer of John Calvin's. Would you please bow your heads with me and, and let's pray these words together. Grant, Almighty God, that as you would have us to be ruled by the preaching of your word, O oh, grant that those who have to discharge this office may be really endued with your celestial power, that they may not attempt anything of themselves, but with all devotedness spend all their labors for you and for our benefit, that through them we may be thus edified so that you may ever dwell among us and that we through our whole life we may become the habitation of your majesty, O God, and that finally we may come to your heavenly sanctuary where you daily invite us as an entrance there has been once for all opened us by the blood of your only begotten Son, in whose name we pray. Amen.